Well, good morning, everyone. I'll be closing us in prayer. <laughs> we usually don't have these full mornings together. I might have to go David Platt speed in the message. So if you would please open to 1 Timothy. Oh, it's raining, so you're not going anywhere. We're good. <laughs> 1 Timothy chapter 1. You know, uh, going back to uh, the last prayer night that we had, the theme of that night, and it's really fun to see what theme bubbles up as we're just spending time together uh, praying through the, the needs of the church and our fellowship with one another. Uh, the word that seemed to bubble up was respond, responding to the Lord. And so I, I appreciate Mr. Denny's response to the Lord um, and Milton is responding to the Lord. We, you know, the J family were the ones for years that helped us coordinate and really drive the passion for Secret Church. And I, I'm, I was thrilled when Milton asked about it because he's responding to something that the Lord's doing. I was kind of like, all right, Lord, how, what do we do? It really is a, it's a special, special night. So I'm just thankful for people responding to the Lord, and I encourage everybody. It's not... Responding to the Lord is not some weird scientific equation that you don't know about yet. It simply is a, a sense that you have in your spirit. Like, hey, maybe this. And when you find that when you walk in those patterns, God shows up in very unique ways that communicates, hey, I'm using you. I'm using you to, to love others and uh, express my love and care for the church. So... Uh, 1 Timothy 1, this morning we're going to be going through verses 12 through 21. Paul tells Timothy, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. But the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. That by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of the faith. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Father, we, we need your wisdom. We need the presence of your Holy Spirit to be upon us, to hover over us right now, that we would have the gift of illumination to understand the truth that is the greatest truth we will ever fight for in this life, that Jesus came into the world to save us. Thank you. We rejoice in that. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. You know, the verse right before this passage in verse 11, the Apostle Paul says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which, which he's been entrusted. So uh, what he's doing in these next couple paragraphs is highlighting to Timothy, the gospel is to be the most important thing. The gospel is to be preeminent first. It's to be of primary importance. But I ask us, what is the gospel? Over the past 20 years, the evangelical community has sought to stress the importance of the gospel. The push has been to be gospel-centered. I have personally benefited from this emphasis and a primary value of this church is to keep the gospel central. I'm indebted to guys like C.J. Mahaney and Jerry Bridges for their preaching and teaching in this area. And I trust that my life has borne gospel fruit from a passion for the gospel itself. But what is the gospel? Is it just simply a word we say? What, what's behind this word? What we have to understand is that the gospel is all over the Bible. Yes, it is named in the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those contain the gospel message as revealed through Jesus. But when we begin to see what Jesus did and what, what those gospel writers were saying, we begin to see that Jesus is all over the place and his work for us is all over the place in the Bible. So what's the gospel? It's the good news of God's grace and mercy be extended to sinners through faith in Christ. Very simple sentence, isn't it? Paul says it. This is a trustworthy and deserving statement of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul doesn't get too far in this letter before rehearsing the gospel of glory to set its primacy for Timothy as well as the church in Ephesus. And the answer to the false teachers is to redirect them to the gospel. Stop going off uh, on tangent, stop adding to the gospel, keep the gospel the main thing. The gospel, you know, it, we don't move on from the gospel. And when teachers want to, when preachers want to move on, like, all right, we know that Jesus died for us, let's get to the deeper things or the other things that we can really access to make our, our spiritual lives uh, worthy and, and fun to live. But we don't move on from the gospel. It is the structure within which we discover the everlasting realities that God has achieved for us through his son. The gospel is the building, it's the school building that we go in to learn all that Jesus is and all that God is revealed through Jesus. The gospel fuels our love for God because we see God's love for us. The gospel fuels our growth in holiness because we gaze upon a, a Savior who is holy in word and deed. And the gospel fuels our understanding of Scripture because we begin to see Jesus all over the place. And the gospel fuels our mission because we remember how God came after us and captured us and won us for his glory. And as we rehearse the glory of the gospel, what we find is that condemnation and legalism, they fall off because we keep central what God keeps central. This is why we're encouraged, and Jerry Bridges uh, came up with the phrase in his book, The Discipline of Grace, saying, preach the gospel to yourself. What does that mean? He says that each day, we should, one, be honest with ourselves 
and the limitations that we have in our efforts because of our sin. But then the second thing is to turn our hearts to Jesus in faith yet again. We turn to him and we remember the relational standing that we have with God. And thirdly, that we don't bear the condemnation for our sin anymore because he took it all. He took it all. Now, this is Palm Sunday when Jesus entered Jerusalem for the final week of his life. And they're waving palm branches and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Son of David, blessed is he. They're looking for a king. But what they didn't realize was that this king needed to die in order for them to experience his life. The gospel was of most importance to Paul, and the gospel should be most important for us as well. Here's our main point. The church is to preserve the gospel of God's glory by stewarding the gospel's simple message, by rejoicing in its penetrating power, and by living out its worth through our lives. So what is the gospel message? The gospel message is beautiful in its simplicity. There is no reason to add to the gospel like the false teachers were seeking to do. It's beautiful in its simplicity, and it's perfect as it's been handed down through the centuries. These simple sentences have a profound truth. Verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul says in other places, 1 Corinthians 15, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Simple phrases and sentences. But yet, profound realities attached to those sentences. I would... Offer to help you understand the gospel message in this way. Just think of four things. God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response. And I would challenge you to be able to share the gospel story, God, man, Christ, response, a little outline within three minutes. I don't know why I chose three, because Jesus likes threes. Three, I don't know. Try it in one minute. It can be done. You really can do this. But when we are precise with it, it adds to the simplicity of the profoundness of what we're walking out. So what is God? God is the benevolent creator of all things. He's holy and loving toward his creation. And he established a framework of fellowship with his creation, particularly Adam and Eve, where obedience was the fruit of their love with him. God, a benevolent creator, holy, loving toward all of his creation, and he provides a framework of fellowship for these two, and their obedience was to be the mark of their love for him. But man, created in unbroken fellowship, desiring to be God, to be the rule giver, not the rule follower, breaks with God in rebellion sinned against God, broke fellowship with him, and now seeks to restore that fellowship through personal effort. We try, we try to get back to God, and we can't. That's why God, being the loving and benevolent creator and desiring fellowship with us, sends his son. 
So in Christ, we have the demonstration of God's love to reconcile us to himself. God stepping down in Christ to pay the penalty for our sin as our substitute. And he then is the only means by which we can be forgiven of our sins and restored to fellowship with God. God created us this way. Our rebellion separates us. Jesus pays the penalty to bring us back to God. That's not the whole gospel. We have to respond. And that response looks like repenting of our sins. God, I'm sorry I was trying to make you obey me rather than me obey you. I'm sorry for my sins. I repent of my sins. I turn around the other direction. and I'm, Now, God, I'm turning toward you. I'm running towards you. And there's a faith response that we have. Repentance coupled with faith that says, Jesus, it's all you, not on my benefit, not on my effort or merit. It's all on you. I can't perform my way in like I try. Jesus, I trust you and you alone. God, man, Christ response. And when we rehearse it over and over and over again, we begin to see how great and glorious it really is. I love to find in there, they're hidden in the Gospels, Uh, the gospel in a verse. In Mark chapter 1, verse 31, when Jesus heals Peter's uh, mother-in-law, here's what Mark says. He came, took her by the hand, and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve him. The gospel. Jesus came to a woman embattered in the result and effect of sin, sicknesses in the world because of Adam and Eve's rebellion. He touches her, takes her by the hand, lifts her up. Fever left her, a picture of sin, sin's domination leaving us. It's dominion leaving us. And then we obey. We serve him. They're all over the place, and they're really fun when you you can uh, parse those out. But what Paul describes is, let's remember what the gospel is, but when he says, of whom I am the foremost, he's talking about a depth that the gospel goes to. He's talking about a gospel power. We have a gospel message we ought to preserve, but there's a gospel power that should be seen and felt in all of God's people within the church. He says he's the worst of sinners. This is not a contemporary cultural acceptance statement. We live within a culture that says, man, you cannot think of yourself as the worst. You're not going to be able to cope with anything if you keep on thinking you're the worst. Here, Paul says, I'm the foremost. I'm the first. I'm the first of sinners. I'm first in line. That's not our response. We usually can think of a whole lot of people that are in front of us before Jesus gets to us that have been worse than we are. So why does he go into this worst of sinners? Because he's describing... Well, just hear what Paul did. He's a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. In Acts 26, he recounts to, I think it was Festus at that time. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. See, 
Paul got a handle of his sin because he recognized that he was trying to undo the very thing that God was doing. And when Jesus appears to Paul in Acts chapter 9, we have it recorded. Jesus appears to him and a light shines. He falls to the ground. Who are you? He says, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. And all the while, Paul thought he was doing God's business. He thought he was right. I'm doing it God's way. I'm the, I'm the foremost of the holy people because I'm going after the people that are denying him. But yet, his own conscience weighed upon him. But in raging fury, Paul was a madman, so to speak, in his sin because of his sin, because of that separation from Jesus, separation from God. When we are separated from Christ, apart from Christ, we go headlong into sin. And we are convinced every single day that we are right. And somehow God's wrong. And in many ways, these will seem contrary to reality or rationality. But when Paul describes being, he came after me, of whom I am the foremost. See, when in our Western thought, we read Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And we think of it as a wide concept. His offer is to everybody, which it is. But that's not what Paul's emphasis here is. You know what his emphasis he came to save sinners me. And he describes a depth that the gospel went into his own hardened heart when he was thinking he was right with God, when he was thinking he was doing God's things God's way. God comes to him and says, you've got it all wrong because your heart is hard in your sin because of your sin. When we, Paul, Paul wanted to get the wonder of the depth of the gospel, not so much the breadth, but the depth of the gospel to know it comes to every person, every sinner, and it goes to the deepest caverns of their hearts. God came to him and penetrated the deepest parts of his heart. And the deepest parts of who we are really is the seedbed of all sin. I've heard it described that uh, pride is really the seedbed of every sin. And pride is exactly what Adam and Eve sinned with. They were proud. No, I'm not going to follow the rules. I, I want to make up the rules. We see in Isaiah's experience when, when we accurately see Jesus, we become, we become immediately aware of our own sinfulness. In Isaiah 6 verse 5, he said he sees him high and exalted and the seraphim are, are circling him and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with your glory. And they keep on saying it when, when Isaiah, and I believe he was looking at the pre-incarnate Jesus before he was born on the earth. He was there. Isaiah sees Jesus and his first words are these, woe is me, I'm dead, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When we see Jesus accurately, we also get an understanding of our separation from him. And if we're separated from him, it really doesn't matter what we've done. We just know we're not with him. And by our own performance and merit, we can't get to him. Reminds me also of John Newton's story, we sang Amazing Grace earlier. We're all familiar with that story. And what, through the centuries, uh, yeah, he wrote it in the late 1700s. Uh, since it was written, people have adjusted the word wretch to soften it. Because they didn't want to, you know, it's kind of 
It's a hard word, a harsh word. But that's what John Newton wrote. He saved a wretch like me. How did John Newton come to write that? He was one who was against God. Uh, when he was young, he was press-ganged by the British military to serve in the British Navy. They just captured him, literally captured him on the street and put him on a ship and said, you're serving now. While he was there, he would find Christians and he would enter into conversations and he made it his complete goal to undo their faith. And while he was on one of those journeys, actually by that time he was working uh, for... I think, if, the, if I remember correctly, he was working for another company who was transporting slaves. He is uh, he's not the captain of the ship at that point, though he was the captain of a ship and made three voyages to transport slaves from Africa to the Americas. Uh, a storm happens one night. He comes face to face with God, and everything about him changed because he saw God. And began to understand himself, began to understand the wretchedness of his own soul. And if you go look at John Newton's tombstone to this day, it says this. John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Well, we, can, we can always do the comparison game. You know, we think if we're all lining up for Judgment Day, we want Hitler in front of us, not Mother Teresa. You know, we, we play that comparison game without realizing that's not how God's looking at it at all. He's looking into our hearts. So whether, whether we have really acted upon the evil that's in our hearts or we're evil in our hearts, apart from Christ, that's all we have. And within, uh, within theology, the study of God, um, some, some through the centuries began with Augustine and then comes to the, the reformers. They came up with a concept and what Theologians have called it is total depravity to describe our condition, our heart condition before Christ, before repenting of our sins and trusting him. It's a phrase that it's also called total inability, radical corruption, trying to figure out how do we describe who we are before Christ. But really, it's a, it's a phrase to describe man's inability to save himself from his sin. Total depravity doesn't mean that everyone is equally bad or as bad as they could be, or that people can't do good things. See, our problem is not that we can't do good things. Our problem is that we don't do good things all the time with ever not doing a good thing, because that's how God created us. We're in his image. He is a good and loving, benevolent God, and everything that he does is good. So when we don't reflect that goodness, there's something about us that we, it's a hardness what the Bible describes. In Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul tells him, if you remember, he's the same church he's writing to. He's already told him this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Two times, we were, Paul's describing, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Deadness means dead. Unable, incapable of doing anything. Can't scratch our nose even when we're dead. Can't do anything. Now, it describes spiritually what's going on inside of us. It means a moral and spiritual inability to understand God and a moral and spiritual inability to achieve God's holy standards. That's why God has to come to us. He's got to act upon us. We can't, we can't make ourselves come alive to obey God. God comes to us and makes us alive in Christ, and then we obey him. The glorious, the gospel is so glorious for how its power goes into us to give us life. It's called regeneration, to change the inner core of unrighteousness, taking that, and Ezekiel says, it's taking the heart of stone out and then giving, giving a heart of flesh that can sense God and feel God and love God. Richard Phillips says this in his book, What's So Great About the Doctrines of Grace? He says, the only way to see the greatness of the gospel is to see how bad, our, how bad is our plight. Indeed, it is when we best see our lost condition that we most treasure the gospel. This is what the doctrine of total depravity tells us. That the only way someone like this, someone like you and me, is going to be made right with God is by radical grace. And when we combine an accurate appraisal of man's total depravity and a biblical vision of the absolute holiness of God, we see the gospel in all of its glory. We see God high and lifted up. Jesus, like Isaiah saw him, high and lifted up with his train, filling the temple. And we understand, woe is me. I should die because I've seen Jesus. Jesus has the seraphim take coal from the altar and bring it to Isaiah, and he touches his lips. And he says, your sin is atoned for. All pointing to Jesus' sacrifice for us. And when we trust him, our sin is atoned for. No penalty left over for us to bear. When we remember that, we experience the freedom that God wants us to walk in. But what's the focus of the gospel? While we have eternal and infinite blessing from the gospel, from Jesus dying for our sins and our trust in him, we are not the emphasis of our salvation. God is the focus. The focus is on God alone. God welcomes us into himself for us to experience all the joy that he has in being God. And the beautiful deference that he gives the Father, Son, and Spirit give to one another. That's why Paul says to the king, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. It's all about God. And when we understand that, we then understand, oh God, why did you express your love and grace to me? The worst of sinners in my own book. I don't need a line of people behind me or in front of me. I'm the one that's bad. 
I'm the one that's unrighteous and needs regeneration. I'm the one dead in my sins and needing to be made to alive to even respond to God. And that beautiful moment when God calls our names and we open our eyes to him and we say, yes, I trust you. I follow you. I want you. See, when God's on the throne, we experience his holy delight. And he wants us. And then that holy delight translates into a gospel life. We have the message that we preserve. We have the power that goes deep within us. And then it's to be expressed through us. The gospel is worthy of our lives. It's worthy of our devotion. And Paul tells Timothy, hey, wage the good warfare. Later on, we're going to see this. He tells him, fight the good fight. Wage the good warfare. Who God has been to us in our past is the same for our future. That's why Paul's reminding him, hey, remember when you were commissioned. Remember, when you're, remember your ordination. You were called by God. There was prophecies laying on of hands. People confirmed. God spoke through other people to confirm what he was going to do in you. Keep going. Keep going because it's good. The hope that Timothy entered ministry with is not undone by confusing circumstances or, or uh, conversations that are very difficult. The hope that he has endures with gospel light. And we are to fight the right fight. Wage the good warfare. Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. How do we fight? Our obedience. Right after this is the armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God. That you may be able to stand. Preserve. Guard. The truth. And the final admonition. Is to stay the course. Shipwrecked faith is a sad reality. These two Hymenaeus and Alexander. Have a dishonorable mention in the Bible. They're the ones that are like, man, my name's in the Bible. All the wrong reasons. These two had gone off the rails to where Paul says he's washed his hands of them and he's handed them over to Satan. Meaning, and it's the same phrase he uses uh, for the Corinthian church, meaning send them out of the church. They can't, they can't keep teaching what they're teaching. They need to go realize how wrong they are. We feel that as parents when children make unwise choices, maybe even wandering from the gospel. And we feel it deep within inside of us. We feel what Paul feels. Just, just go, get it over with. But we pray, we ask God to redeem and restore. Now, Hymenaeus and Alexander, uh, it says, he's, the word there, shipwreck of their faith, in the original language is the faith. They didn't undo their own faith. They just proved to never have true faith. It wasn't founded upon Christ. But they're making shipwreck of others' faith. Like, oh, oh there's something else going on? I need, I need something else? They weren't preserving the faith, the truth. I'm saddened over the past several years to hear more and more preachers and worship leaders, those who have walked with the Lord, um, Saying publicly, they no longer are following Christ, even to the point of saying, I'm denying that's even the way to God. 
uh, people that I have benefited from, worship leaders that, I, that wrote songs that we still sing and see God clearly with. Just sad. when they, A term that was coined by one of them was an ex-evangelical. Rather than evangelical, ex-evangelical as he's pursuing a divorce with his wife. What does this do to the faith? Makes people scratch their heads. Makes me scratch my head. Now I hope, I hope people who are walking away from the faith like that uh, are just being jerks to God. That's what I hope. I hope it doesn't mean that their faith was futile, that they really didn't have a saving faith. Because here's the thing, and young people listen to this. I remember when I was in high school, I used to think, uh, one day, you know, God's always going to be there, so maybe I can live life like I want to, and then when I'm ready, I'll settle down and really commit to the Lord. It wasn't until college, having a conversation with my pastor, when I realized there's no guarantee I'll want to come back to God. Because I will have hardened my heart so much that it could prove I didn't have saving faith to begin with. You know, when we look at the warnings in Scripture, they're to tell us, you know, when we tell our children, don't go run in the street, their response to us is out of love. Oh, you're my mom, you're my dad, I trust you. But they get that weird look in their eyes, and you know, they just want to try just to see what happens. I think a lot of times it's, how far is your love going to extend toward me? So they run out in the street, and we're running after them. I haven't known, I and mean, maybe you're one of those kids, I haven't known kids who keep on doing that. Like, when they see the panic on you, and they're, yeah, I'll get inside. They know then, oh, your love stretches all the way that far. And that's what it looks like. It's an intense love that now I want to stay in. And so we want to stay in our parents' love. We want to, when we obey God, it's showing us we really do have saving faith because I want to stay in his love. So we don't have to go around fearing, do I really have saving faith? Do I not have saving faith? No, if you're obeying, you have saving faith. That's the fruit of the gospel in your life. But listen, when we, all of us are prone to wander, uh, except for the grace of God, we'd all be denying the faith. Remember the depth that he came to you to make you alive with him. And just don't be a jerk to him. Love him like he loves you. Honor him and obey. Serve him in every aspect of your life, rehearsing over and over and over again. That's when faith and the good conscience come in. This faith is not a, uh, we don't keep on expressing a saving faith. We have expressed a saving faith, and now we grow in a knowledge and goodness of God that keeps us close to him. And that good conscience, remember you already said that, it's without condemnation. It's a good conscience. I'm walking, and now that good conscience also comes from living a life of purity and holiness toward God, saying, I really want to honor you, God, in everything. And when we do this, we are renewed in the gospel Every day. We were renewed with the truth that he came in Christ to extend grace and mercy to us. He loves us. And he called us by name. And we responded. If you have not yet responded in that way, would you please respond to him? Would you simply say, 
I repent of my sins. I trust you, Jesus. I trust you for salvation. I'm not trusting in my own works to be, to be uh, good for you. I'm not even trusting in my own capacity to understand all that you are. I'm going to trust that you have revealed yourself. And in that simple truth, I will experience the profound realities of life with you. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would please keep us near the cross. Keep us near the cross that we would not wander off from the cries of Jesus, especially his greatest cry, it is finished. No longer do we stand before you with any penalty to bear because Jesus, you took it all and you took it all so we would have life and and understand the experience of a loving, ongoing, intimate relationship with you. God, I pray that we would feel that, and we would understand it's worthy of our lives, worthy of our lives. Lord, I pray that you would also give us boldness in walking with one another to assure one another of of what saving faith really looks like and how we are to not wander off but, but treasure and guard the gospel message. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.